Very lovely to be here again. Thanks so much, everybody. Um, I always love coming here. Um, recently, a couple of weeks back, I guess, uh, at the men's uh, Saturday morning uh, event, it was a real treat just to be included with that and to share a little bit at that time. And, and uh, around the same time, Andrew invited me to come today, which is really kind. So uh, here's what's on my heart. Uh, it's been going on for a few weeks. Um, a number of us might know that uh, I'm involved in a kind of a coffee shop thing um, called Cafe Church. About almost nine years ago, I just had this uh, desire to take church out of a building and out of a Sunday morning and uh, to be where people are, are gathering normally and people, people gather normally in a coffee shop. And so... I just felt kind of a tug to go and talk to a total stranger who owns a coffee shop. And I presented this idea, not knowing how he might respond. I said, what would you think? I told him my name. And uh, what would you think if um, we rented or borrowed your coffee shop sometime for something like a cafe church? And his response was, when do you want to start? So obviously it showed me that it wasn't my idea, and it, uh, he was just waiting for it. Um, so it's been almost nine years, and th this group of folks meet on Thursday night, and uh, you're never quite sure who might walk in. Uh, I, was, I was sharing uh, with Andy before the gathering this morning, of a young man who walked in uh, just two weeks back, uh, he was encouraged by somebody else to walk in because they knew that he had a lot going on, and they thought that maybe Cafe Church could help. Cafe Church can't help. Jesus helps. But I'm so glad he came, and he unloaded. I'm going to have no place to live as of this time next week, because my landlord was kicking me out, and I don't have a job, and I really don't want to live on the street. And so he welcomed the idea of people just praying, so people prayed. That was on the Thursday night. On the Monday morning, he sent a note saying, my landlord changed his mind. And I thought, what a coincidence. And then uh, on the Wednesday morning, he wrote and said, and I hope I, don't, I hope I do his email justice. I know it began with, something happened when you guys prayed. Um, because his words, out of nowhere, and we know where nowhere is, out of nowhere, I was invited to join a thing called, yes, Youth Employment Services, where they train you and pay you as they train you for employment. So he says, I am employed, and I have a place to live. So that's the kind of thing that goes, has been going on at Cafe Church. The reason I mention that is we, it's very informal, uh, a, a lot of food, a lot of singing, a lot of sharing, a lot of laughter, a lot of tears. And then, like you just did, we break for about 10 minutes, but it's not necessarily to get the, these guys need to have a smoke. So they go out and have a smoke. And they come back, and, um, and then we open up. And what we've been opening up most recently for the last five weeks is just taking a look at Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. The seven churches receiving a message from the ascended Jesus um, and appreciating the message that he was telling these individual churches 
and asking ourselves as a little community in a coffee shop, I wonder what Jesus might be saying to us. So I'm just sharing that with you today. Because it's his word. And when Jesus speaks, we listen, right? And in this situation, we, Jesus with these seven churches gives you, we see a unique description of Jesus every time for each individual church. We see an evaluation of sorts that Jesus is giving. Sometimes he's commending, sometimes he's correcting, sometimes he is really warning. And then we see a promise for those who listen and those who remain true. And even that little uh, group in the coffee shop are sensing something of what that means. I remind myself, and I'm just sharing this with you now because it might help some of us here, that whenever we open this, it is as if we're hearing the captain speaking to his soldiers, the master of the house speaking to his servants. It's as if we're hearing the creator, of course, speaking to his creation. The king speaking to his subjects and what blows us away and uh, is overwhelming is our savior speaking to his friends. So that's how he listened this morning. So let's wander a little bit. It's only six verses. I know it's not going to be up on the screen, but uh, he was ears to hear. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. You might have it handy if it's on your phone. Jesus is speaking to a church in the community called Sardis. And this is his message to them. He says to John, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. Here's what Jesus says. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive. But you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as an unexpected as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So, addressed to this church in Sardis, and if you Google Sardis, 
a real quick glance, you'll notice some things. you notice that as a city, it was wealthy. You'll read about an earthquake that took place in 17 AD, destroying the whole place. But then Tiberius Caesar has the whole place rebuilt. You'll read about its history and how it just uh, was conquered numerous times despite the fact that it felt it was so well fortified. It did not even need to be protected. And that was their danger. The Cyrus, the Persian leader, uh, had a scout notice how they, the inhabitants would go climb up this hill and find a special pathway into the city without being noticed. And so that's what his whole army did. They just walked into the city because nobody was watching. And they took it. And Alexander the Great conquered it without a fight, pretty much. Um, it actually had this reputation as a city for just giving up and giving in very easily. And when John would write this letter to the church in that community, again, it was still a city of wealth, but historians tell us that it was degenerate. The people were known for being very soft and enjoying luxury and pleasure. And sadly, that attitude was reflected in the church to whatever degree as well. Just being soft, being lazy, and enjoying luxury. The church in Sardis had lost its vitality, had lost its power. It had a reputation for being alive, but in fact, according to Jesus, it was more like a corpse than a living body. Again, as you read commentators on this, you see them saying that the church was as degenerate, in a sense, as the city itself. In other words, it would have been difficult if, we, if you and I had popped in. It would have been difficult as we walked around to detect who is a follower of Jesus in the city and who isn't. So you just think about that for a second as you maybe contemplate a moment about the state of the church at times and in the present in the church in Canada. But look at how Jesus is described. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. The sevenfold spirit of God. Um, now, you can, if you, you can do what I often have been guilty of doing. You can just read that and keep going and don't stop and say, what does that mean? And move on to find something that you do understand. But it's good to ask, what does that mean? In my own little study on this, right away my mind goes to Isaiah chapter 11, where we read this incredible prophecy about Jesus, written about 700 plus years before Bethlehem. This is what was said. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. Here it is. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Seven. And he will delight in obeying the Lord. 
He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth as an undergarment. Seven, absolute completeness, full of the spirit, complete in his presence, complete in power. And a fullness that he wants to give and see operating in the churches. He holds the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. The seven churches in this case, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and their messengers, their pastors, and the congregations. The point, and you look at that, is this. The church is the possession of Jesus. He owns it. It's his. It's not ours. People often speak of my church. I understand. I sometimes say it too. It's not my church. It's his church. The church belongs to Jesus. He bought it with his blood. We sang about it this morning. He has every right to govern it. He has every right to inspect it. And he has every right to expect from it. Just to point out the obvious New life belongs to Jesus. This congregation belongs to Jesus. Jesus has every right to govern this church. He has every right to govern us individually. He comes to inspect us as church. He comes to expect something from us as church. The terrible accusation against this particular church, Sardis, is it had a reputation for being alive, but it was spiritually dead. Reputation is one thing. Reality can be quite another. Appearances are one thing. What is actual can be quite a different matter. Impressing onlookers does not necessarily mean Jesus is impressed. I mean, Some churches have great websites, great Facebook pages. Some churches have great buildings, great worship bands, great all kinds of stuff, great coffee. Does it necessarily mean that the church is in step? Not necessarily at all. Doesn't mean they're not, but doesn't mean they are. And Jesus saw through this. Um, being busy as a church doesn't mean there's life there either. Someone warned me years ago, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. A busy church does not necessarily mean it's the life of the Spirit of God. The church in Ephesus, if you just kind of flip back a little bit, they were reminded by Jesus, it's possible to believe all the right things and do all the right things, but miss the point entirely. The point being an actual living, growing love for our Savior and for one another. So spiritually dead. That's interesting. Uh, that pops up a lot in Scripture. Uh, you think of the story of the prodigal son and the older brother's kind of ticked because there's this party going on, because his younger brothers come back. Dad, why are you doing this for him? And the response was, this son of mine was dead but has returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. 
Paul says, don't let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. Why? For you were dead, but now you have new life. There's your church name right there. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right, to bring glory to God. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and says, once you were dead, Because of your disobedience and your many sins, even though you were dead because of your sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. The point is there's a kind of, every effect of sin is a kind of a death. I was just reading again this morning these words when Paul writes to Christian people in Rome. He says to them, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. If a person accepts the invitation of sin for long enough, it becomes a lifestyle. The time comes when that person can't accept anything else but, because they're a slave to it. It's their reality. It looks like such was Sardis. It was a huge deal when Paul wrote to the Christian people in Rome, is a huge deal for the church in Sardis, and I would say, and you would agree, it's a huge deal for the church in 2023 Toronto. Now, what caused their death? Well, it's interesting, again, if you have an opportunity, and you probably know this anyway, but it always pays to go and look at it again. If you look at the other messages to the other six churches, sometimes the cause is heresy. But not so with the church in Sardis. Somebody suggested the reason they didn't get into heresy, it takes effort to get into heresy. And uh, it's kind of lazy. And for some of the churches, it was persecution. The outside. But there's no reference here to the church being persecuted from the outside at all. And you wonder why? Well, the answer, I think, is pretty clear. Because the church didn't matter enough to be persecuted. It had ceased to matter. It was lifeless. It wasn't a threat at all to the compromised or corrupt culture. It reflected the culture as opposed to reflecting Christ to the culture. It was so lifeless that it wasn't worth attacking. It was a church that was at peace, I'm sure, because it was lifeless. The church had lost its vital force, ceased to be any importance in that community. Can you imagine if the church, this congregation, if a church just disappeared and nobody notices, nobody would notice that the church in Sardis disappeared. A really living church will be the conscience of that community. But a church that has so accommodated itself to the world is dead. It's taken up space, and no one's going to miss it when it's gone. Well, the wonderful news is this letter to Sardis doesn't end there because Jesus doesn't leave them there. Isn't that good news? He doesn't leave us there when we're in some kind of a similar state that some of these folks were in. When Jesus speaks, there is hope. So there's hope right now 
for the church in Toronto. Here's what he says. Verse 2, wake up. Whoa, okay. I was sharing with some of a friend this week. I don't need an alarm clock in my house. I got Declan. I know when it's time to get up because I hear those feet running down the steps and running to the washroom. And I hear him playing above my head. Uh, I don't need an alarm clock. It's great. I got a walking alarm clock. These people need an alarm clock. Wake up. Yeah, they need a deck and very good kings. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. Wake up, which tells you and me, there's still time. It's not too late. It's a word of encouragement. Wake up means be on the lookout. Unlike those people who didn't even bother watching for potential enemies to attack or take them over. They just thought they were safe. No, be on the lookout. Be alert. It's a frequent command, isn't it, in the New Testament? We are so prone to nod off when it comes to being alive and kicking in our faith. Again, some scriptures are familiar to you. Romans 13. You know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. When he writes to the people of the church in Corinth, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. When Peter writes, very familiar words, stay alert. Watch out for thy enemy, the devil. Why? Because he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. What is Jesus? Keep, watch, and pray. To those closest to him the night before. So no one will give in to temptation. The Spirit's willing, the body's so weak. To the Thessalonians, Paul says to them, be on your guard. Don't be asleep like others. Stay alert. Be clear-headed. And then these words from Paul to the church in Ephesus, after spending three years with them, I know false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth to draw a following. Watch out, he says to them. Jesus says to this church, wake up, watch out. The great truths I get from reading this section is this. Jesus is looking for something from this church. He's looking for love, and he's looking for loyalty, and he's looking for service. And it was up to them to get with it. Verse 3. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. How could they strengthen themselves? Strengthen what little remains. The answer is, remember how you first received the good news. Remember, go back. Christ is saying to this lethargic and complacent, compromised church, he's saying, Listen, remember the enthusiasm, the joy, the peace, the thrill you experienced when you first received me into your life. Do you remember that? Memory is key in our walk with God. I just share personally that the morning after Jesus so kindly got my attention on September 26, 74, 10 p.m. in Brunswick Avenue, the next morning... I was in a little community, and we sang a hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I just felt, I just became a pile of mush. Because those words had become my experience the night before. And for years, 
And I would say, without making a big deal about it, even now some, how many years, mercy? 49 years. When I hear, when I survey the wondrous cross, it all comes back. And that night, 397 Brunswick Avenue. I, uh, when I pick up, and this might be your experience too, my first Bible, it cost five bucks, 95 cents. That was a long time ago. When I, and I flip through this, and I see all the things I scribbled down, all the, it all comes back. The absolute joy, the excitement, the adventure of uh, coming to know and be, on, be on, this, on team with Christ. When I pick up my very first Bible study book, Getting to Know Jesus, 1971, this was talked out. It was cheap too. That, that brings it all back for me. Jesus is saying to these people, do you, you remember what that was like. Go back. Remember and obey. Hold firmly to it. And he says that marvelous word of invitation. Repent and turn to me again. Repent. Rethink. Take a look in the mirror. Look where you were. Look where you are. Say, how did I get there? I'm not going to stay here. And turn back saying no to the old things and putting on the new. It's a decisive action. I've had it. I don't know how I got here. I'm so sorry I got here. I don't want to stay here. This is not the person I'm supposed to be. I know that. Or as a church, not the church we're supposed to be. We know that. Jesus, please, we've, we repent of our sin. We want to be in the right place with you again. Please restore unto us the joy of your salvation, creating us clean hearts, renew right spirits within us. Amen? That was a message for no more drifting, but now an intentional walk, intentional walk. Turn to me again, as opposed to living some kind of spasmodic Christianity. Too many people, and you know this, can be unmistakably Christian one day and questionably the next, sacrificially kind in one moment and just brutally selfish the next. And the command of Jesus is it's a call for consistency and a continuous obedience. And this marvelous glimmer of light Jesus gives to this church. There are some, he says in verse 4, there are some in the church of Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they're worthy. There were some there still who were determined to be faithful. Even though they were surrounded by people who weren't, they were determined to. And God in his mercy searches for the good. It's interesting, again, if you read about the other churches, sometimes we read, Frank and Pergamos, for, for instance, and the Thyatira, that there were a few bad among the good. In this case, there were a few good among the bad. But they were there, the remnant. And they hadn't, according to Jesus, the words he used, they hadn't soiled their clothes. I mean, James speaks to some kind of uh, admiration for people who have determined to remain unspotted from the world. As difficult as it is. And the promise Jesus gives they will walk with me. I love that picture. If somebody ever asks you, fill me in, what's this Christian stuff all about anyway? I think it's fair for you to, and me to say, well, glad you asked. As far as I can figure out, 
this Christian stuff is being about going on a walk with Jesus. It's living life with Jesus and seeing where he takes us. He follows, he leads, we follow. It's a call, as we look in the New Testament, can I run with that word walk? It's a call to walk in truth. It's a call to walk in love, to walk in peace, to walk in the light, to walk in the spirit, to walk as Jesus walked. That's the invitation. And the promise, he says, those people, number one, verse five, that they will be clothed with white raiment. What's that all about? Again, you might read it and just keep going, but stop for a sec. Festivity. White festivity. But also victory. I read, and you, you could read it as well, that when a, a Roman triumph was celebrated, the citizens would clothe themselves in white to welcome back the victorious troops. And the town for that period of time was called the City of White, celebrating victory as we celebrate the victory of Christ. The white robes celebrate victory and festivity, but also they're a mark of purity. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. Clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And I was sharing with the cafe church, a lady put her hand up. Actually, she didn't put her hand up. No one puts her hands up there. They just kind of butt in. It was neat. And she, and she said, you're missing something. Yes, it's about festivity. Yes, it's about victory. Yes, it's, it's about purity. But he, she said to me, and I love it. She said, when you surrender, what do you wave? You wave a white flag. And I thought, you know, she's right. Because it's about surrender. Because the only way to actually experience the victory that Christ wants for us is to surrender to him. So two points for Tyra for bringing that up. It's the way to victory is surrender. And then Jesus says, their names would not be wiped out of the book of life. It's assurance of heavenly citizenship. You kind of pop through the scripture. You see the, the book of life mentioned in Exodus. You see it mentioned in Daniel. You see it mentioned in the Psalms. And you see it mentioned in Philippians. And you say, well, what's that all about? Well, that's a topic for Andrew next week. But uh, the, what it certainly is about in the very nutshell is it's about assurance. It's about those who are celebrating and staying true and desire in their hearts to stay close there's no giant eraser going to take their name out of the book. They are mine. And I love the, the, this story. All this. He says, Jesus says, I will confess them before the Father. Those who confess me, I will confess before my Father and his angels. I'll just share a little story. I was in uh, the Paw Manitoba, and the Paw Manitoba is kind of north and cold. And... Uh, a lot of people live on the streets of the Palm Manitoba, and primarily Cree, Cree, Cree people. And it's heart-wrenching stuff, and uh, nobody asks for any of this. No one asks to be born in the kind of family where nobody wants you. Nobody asks to be um, kicked out of school in grade two for whatever reasons, but my friend James was. So he lives on the street, grade two education, and I completely understand why he would turn to drink. Completely get it. Completely get it. Not throwing any stones at all. Because nobody seemed to care. And he had no idea that life could possibly be any different. But thankfully, there were a bunch of 
of marvelous, big-hearted Christian people in the Paw Manitoba. And they got together, and they started this neat ministry called Gateway, Northern Gateway, for people who are just kind of in a difficult space. And it wasn't one denomination. It was many denominations. So they used a Pentecostal soup kitchen. I love this. Marvelous pastor, this lady. This loving people. And the place seemed to be always open. And so people just gathered there. And then they would literally go and look for people on the street and bring meals to people on the street and try to find a place for those people to hang their hat so they wouldn't be stuck on the street. And so having a little lunch in a restaurant, I love this with a couple of those pastors. And uh, James, the gentleman Cree man, noticed, recognized the car. So he figured that we were inside. And so James comes to see us. But they won't let him in the restaurant. They judge him at the door of the restaurant. And they told him to go. And we saw it without planning, without any kind of, uh, the three of us just stood up and said at a loud voice, he's with us. And they escorted him in and pulled the chair out for him. And he joined us. Enough of that. He's with us. Jesus says, I will confess, I will announce your name. He's with me. She's with me. Isn't that marvelous? Marvelous. That's the kind of heart our Savior has for us. And that's the kind of heart we're to have for others. So just in summary, real quick, I've talked too long. What else is new? Sardis was a broken place as a community. When I read this, it doesn't take much to appreciate the fact where we hang our hat, Toronto, is a broken place as a community. We know this. I'm not trying to throw stones, just a horribly sad reality. Sardis was corrupt. Sardis was immoral, Sardis was idolatrous, Sardis was adulterous. You get the picture. And we ask about Toronto, do we see a pattern? I believe we do. So the question then is, so then how do we as church live in our Sardis? Well, it seems to me we've got three choices. One is to hide away our little corner Separate ourselves from it all somehow. Keep a distance. Don't get involved. Avoid any interaction. Keep ourselves apart. And yet Jesus comes along and says, I, I, I think I talked about salt and light, didn't I? Salt and light. No good if you're hiding away. Do you really care about the community if you hide away? No. Not a good answer. Number two. Okay, get involved but the wrong way. Get involved by kind of enforcing our values upon others, maybe even enforcing them politically, believing that somehow that if we enforce them, then hearts and minds will be changed to become what they're meant to be. And yet you and I know that societies are changed, changed when people are changed, not the other way around. That the issue is a spiritual issue and the answer is a spiritual answer. So it's not about force, evangelism by force. The answer is clear here, what he says to Sardis. The answer is, number one, wake up as church. Wake up as church. It's not too late to wake up. It's not 
too late to remember, to go back to when we first believed the joy, the love, the enthusiasm, the vision that we would have, not just for ourselves and for church, but for our city, our country. Repent is the next word. Lord, I'm, I am so sorry. I'm so thankful I don't have to stay in this space that I've found myself in. Repent. And then he says, begin to walk. Begin to walk with me. Walk in joy. And walk because of victory. And walk in purity. Walk in truth. And walk in peace. And that walk is, as we get, I'll just tell you, I'll shut up right now. Almost. When you sneak into the next chapter, there's no, it's no, it's no wonder that then after speaking to the seven churches, the next chapter and the next chapter is all about worship, about capturing a vision of Jesus and seeing him for who he really is. And when you see Jesus for who really you cannot help but want to worship. You cannot help but want to give your life completely to him. You want to say no to all those things that in any way are trying to compete with that allegiance. You want to surrender it, repent of it, Get back on track. And that's the greatest gift we give to our city is a church that loves and worships Jesus. The greatest gift we can give to our city is to truly be the people God is calling us to be. The city needs the church to be awake, to be alert, to repent, and to walk closely with Jesus. Do you agree with me? The church needs us to stay true to Jesus. That's the greatest gift we can give, as is the greatest gift we can give to our families, as is the greatest gift we can give to our friends. It's the greatest gift. Just stay close to Jesus, because something wonderful happens. People begin to see there's an attraction there. It's not evangelism by force. It's evangelism by fascination. There's something about her, something lovely about that woman. And I think it has to do something with her faith in God. There's something about that guy and his integrity. And I think it has something to do with his faith. Think, I want what that person has. Amen? We pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the words of Jesus that he never leaves us where we are, but invites us to come close. To get out of what pit we might have dug for ourselves and kind of cozied up in that pit. To come out of it, Jesus. To be washed clean. To be adorned again with the beauty of Jesus. All his wondrous attraction and purity. And to begin to live it, not occasionally, but continually. To allow the Holy Spirit to bring us to a place where we are becoming more and more like our Savior. I pray, Jesus, your blessing on this wonderful community called New Life, that they might continue to listen to what the Spirit is saying to them as you draw them closer to one another and draw them closer to you and continue that wonderful change only your Holy Spirit can bring about and then to use this community in ways far beyond their own imagination as how they might best bless and serve the city of Toronto. I pray all this for the glory of your name. Amen.